0: I was kidding, uh, Mike McIntosh, uh, that do you realize that UFOs are the leading cause of death in San Diego County? You follow that? You got, you know, the Evansgate Gate thing? Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. But seriously, and I'm kidding around, of course, but I think the Evans Gate kind of thing isn't the last. And we as Christians, I'm taking for granted that a large percentage of this audience, of course, is Christian audience. Um, as we examine the Heaven's Gate situation, we look at the resumes of those very literate people who were that desperate for answers that they resorted to that approach, even going ultimately to a permanent solution to a temporary problem. What an indictment of the church. What an indictment of the church, that these people didn't find the answers they're looking for in our fellowships. We need to think about that. But um, we're going to try to tie together uh, some of the things that we've learned today. And uh, you and I, one of the things that motivated Mark Eastman and myself to undertake some of the research we've done over the last year or more is the conviction that the, there is a deception, a cosmic deception coming upon the earth in general and the body of Christ in particular. I think you and I are facing far more upheaval conceptually and every other way over the coming weeks, the coming months, the coming years that the body of Christ is not prepared for. So one, I've been, we've been badgered by the press lately, by CNN, CBS, the local papers, uh, and on it goes. Trying to, and one of the questions they ask, what are we trying to accomplish here in this con- in conference? And that's a good question. Because on the one hand, obviously, we're taking advantage of the, you know, the, the celebrations around Roswell to reach out to people who might otherwise not hear us. We had an opportunity to start with a couple of anecdotes. We'll get in the material in a minute. It wasn't that long ago, we got a call in our office, would we be available for an interview, and we do that all the time, of course, but this was an interview with one of the top talk show hosts in Great Britain, a guy by the name of James Whale. And the producer warned us on the phone, and said, I recognize he has a very sarcastic or caustic style, he can be a little aggressive, that's just his style, it's nothing personal, just, be, just give him good answers, no problem. Sure, okay, would we be available for about 20 minutes to talk about Hail, Bop and the Heaven's Gate and all that stuff? Sure, be glad to. So we got connected up and we were talking to him. First of all, it start, it's, I was surprised that he was very respectful and deferent, it wasn't, wasn't what I expected. He was just very supportive, asking very sincere, interesting questions. Making, you know, he was obviously an atheist and that's fine, but he was you know, it's a secular uh, station uh, or network, I should say. The Holy Spirit just took charge of this whole situation because it just moved in a mighty way. And he kept saying, could you be on a little longer? We were on two hours, i give you a cut through it. We had people call in from all over Great Britain, from Scotland up north, Portsmouth, you name it. He obviously has quite a following. And these people weren't hecklers or or weirdos or wackos or that kind of thing. They were people with sincere questions. You mean UFOs are in the Bible? Who was Jesus really? Was he some kind of ET? Now, they weren't hecklers, they were people really asking questions. And it was fascinating to watch that move. We learned later. First of all, we got 509 letters from Great Britain over that broadcast. Uh, his produ- uh, James Wells, producer, confided in us that he had the biggest response from that show that he's had in his career. Now, the point, the lesson that was to us that surprised us, frankly, because we hadn't thought in those terms. May Mike McIntosh forgive me. Mike's uh, been one of our mentors, and he's ta- you think he taught me better? Because Mike would, I'm sure, tell me right away that any opportunity like that to reach out, but frankly, I didn't think in those terms. I was thinking in terms of the content, not the opportunity. It turns out that this area is an enormous evangelistic opportunity because people are willing to talk about the supernatural that wouldn't go near a church. If you talk Holy Spirit, it's amazing how the church insists on communicating to the world in a language they don't understand. We deal in cliches. And we do it all the time. It's tragic. It's tragic. Well, I won't start on that. But the point is, obviously, we're here for that reason. But there's another reason we're here. And the real motivation, I think, that's at the heart of both uh, uh, Mark and I, Mark Eastman and I, is a burden for the body of Christ. Because believing Christians are not ready. Pastors are not ready. What does a pastor do when someone in the congregation says, I was abducted a few weeks ago? And what do you do with that? How do you deal with that? You know, I mean, and and these stories are too, as as you've gathered by now, they're too bizarre to accept, and yet too frequent and too consistent to ignore. So we want to deal with that. Now, we have sort of let, what we've tried to do, uh, in the morning session especially, and I think Mark's followed up with this, is sort of lay a groundwork to try to put in perspective the coming deception. We read a lot in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the big lie. What is the big lie? I think Mark and I both share the view it isn't one of those things that are around right now. It isn't evolution, although that's a big lie. It isn't, you can make a whole list of things. We think the big lie is forthcoming, but it's a very tangible, specific thing. Now, the challenge that we've given you from the beginning, but I'd like to keep it in front of us, if you carry away from this conference, we are being plunged into a period of time about which the bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history including the time that jesus walked the shores of galilee or climbed the mountains of judea and that is an audacious statement because we know a lot i mean the gospels really lay out uh, a lot and the prophecies of the Old Testament, you know 300 prophecies fulfilled in that whole period of time and yet For every one of those prophecies, there are seven of a second coming, and the more you know about the major themes of prophecy and the more you're aware of what's really going on in the world, the more it would appear that it's all getting positioned for the big final climax. Now, that's a statement that's a personal belief, but it's put up before us repeatedly during this conference as a challenge to you. Is that true? To find out whether that's true, you've got to learn two things. You got to find out what the Bible says is forthcoming, not what Chuck Missler or Hal Lindsey or whoever says, but what the Bible says. The second problem, which is not a trivial one either, is to find out what's going on in the world. And you can't do it by reading the retail managed media. And you got to address that, but we'll move on. We do notice that in the um, scripture, Jesus warned us, that men's hearts would fail them for fear for looking after those things which are coming upon the, uh, the earth. And the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Staggering statement when you rethink it through. We talked about the fact that there will be arise false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Let me pause there. Anytime you as a Christian start seeking after experience, whatever the fad is, and there's always a fad, you're on dangerous ground. People come up to me and say, what about this blessing or that blessing? And they go through the list. The list always changes. The list last year is different than the list this year. And are they bad? Hey, I'm no expert in that, but I'll tell you one thing. When you're looking for experience, you are setting yourself up to be deviated from the Word of God. I'm not interested in miracles. What I'm interested in is who did them and prove it to me. Don't... Be on your guard for experience. Why? Because they're going to be counterfeited. The word signs and wonders in another passage we'll be looking at, the lying signs and wonders is going to be the badge. Of your enemies and we're not ready for a major pastor leader kind of guy or a major political kind of guy raising somebody from the dead calling down fire from the sky or whatever we're not ready for that we go to this presumption that gee a miracle especially if it's a good miracle someone's healed now isn't that wonderful maybe it's wonderful be careful Why? Because we are moving into that period of deception. Now, we talked about the nature of angels. We went through that whole list, and I think uh, Mark touched on these things, too. But there's one that we didn't get to because I deliberately left it for tonight. The other thing we know about angels, as we look in the Old and New Testament record, we recognize that they are behind the major world powers. Now, one of the passages is kind of interesting, and I'm taking this from the Septuagint, not the Masoretic or your English. But when the, and chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is an interesting chapter to read in the Septuagint. It reads differently than the Masoretic. When the Most High apportioned the nations, He divided humankind. uh, He fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of their gods. Really? That's the way the NRS, the the, the, uh, the new uh, revised standard does it because they take it from the Septuagint. Kind of interesting, kind of interesting. But let's go further. One of the most interesting glimpses we get into that unseen world behind the scenes is in Daniel 10. Daniel 10 is a prelude to the climax of the book of Daniel, chapter 11 and 12, the big, big ones. But in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is drawn into a time of fasting and prayer for 21 days. Interesting period of time. At the end of those 21 days, he's visited by a messenger. I'm not going to get into who the messenger is right now. There's some debates of exactly who. But the point is, he comes with a messenger. The messenger basically says to him that he has been trying to get through for 21 days. When you first started, I was sent. For 21 days, I was what we would call in military terms, interdicted by some personage called the Prince of Persia. He's not talking about the King of Persia. He's talking about the spirit being behind the Persian Empire. This spirit being was able to intrude himself to prevent this messenger from accomplishing his mission. Now, there's a footnote to this that we don't know. It's conjectural, but it's interesting. You you sort of assume from the text that there's a linkage between the 21 days of fasting and prayer and the 21 days it took the messenger to get through, right? You sort of wonder, what would have happened if Daniel sort of broke off his fast after 19 days? I don't know. I have a suspicion that might have prevented the messenger from getting through. Well, gee, how come we don't have more messengers? Well, I don't know how many of you have fasted for 21 days. And I'm just being a little flippant, but with a point, okay? Now what this messenger goes on to say is that I'm going to give you these neat two chapters, 11 and 12, but as soon as I've done that, I've got to go back and fight this guy again. And after him, the Prince of Greece will follow. So there's apparently another spirit being that's behind the Greek empire. What makes that kind of provocative, the Greek empire surfaces in history 200 years after Cyrus and the Persians and all that. Now that's all there is. There's just this strange murky and that goes on, the messenger goes on, gives Daniel an incredible two chapters. They're so incredible that the critics have had to late date them because they detail the history that follows later. Amazing, but it's an interesting glimpse. There's something going on behind the scenes. There's apparently a demonic personage called the Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. You sort of wonder, is there a Prince of the United States? I think he's buckling up the knees at the moment, but we move on. Um, <laughs> now, I want to take this to the personal level. There's another insight that's classic from the Old Testament that I thought would be kind of fun just to take a look at. And that's in 2 Kings 6. The king of Syria warred against, the, uh, against Israel. He took counsel with the servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. So the king of Syria is saying this in the privacy of his military counsels, right? And the man of God, who incidentally is Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, his buddy, of course, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. <laughs> And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once or twice. In other words, this is a pattern. The king of Syria lays out a plan. Elisha tips off the king of Israel so he can duck that ambush or whatever. Not just once or twice, it was a pattern. And obviously, the king of Syria is upset. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, for he called his servants and said to them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the mole? Who's the mole, right? One of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. This is the first recorded instance in the Old Testament of a phone tap. Okay. So King of Syria now knows where to go, he's going to go after this guy. He said, go and spy where he is that I may send him and fetch him. And it was told him saying, behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses, chariots, tanks, bazookas, whatever, and a great host, little Mr. Translation and um, they came by night and compassed the city round about. So there's the little town Dothan, the Roswell of Judea or whatever, okay, and Uh, it's surrounded now by the Syrian army. Okay? Now, (laughs) let's take a look at the physical situation. When the servant of the man of God was risen in the morning, early, gone forth, behold, the host compassed the city both with horses and chariots and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? He's panicked. He looks out in the morning and, you know, there they are. Now, this is the spiritual assessment. Elisha says to his servant, don't sweat it, Ace. No, he says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, I don't know what went through the servant's mind, you know. I suspect he thought, gee, that sounds like a platitude out of one of your sermons. Hey, fella, I can hear their engines running out there. They're revving up their engines. They're out there, boss. That's sort of the way I visualize this. He's, he hears the, well, you know, we're spiritually okay. But come on, there they are, right? Elisha gets the picture. Elisha prays. And you can almost hear his almost disdain or, or, or uh, frustration with his servant. He says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Simple little prayer. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and what did he see? As he looked out there, of course, he saw all the Syrian armament. But he also saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. That's not a cliché. That's not a religious platitude inserted by some scribe. The Holy Spirit put that there for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is to let us understand the part of the space, the space dimension we see, we talked about that this morning, is limited. The Dachmonides um, in the 12th century concluded from Genesis 1 that we live in ten dimensions. Four are directly knowable, six are not knowable directly. That's his parlance out of the text of Genesis 1. The particle physicists today tell us that we live in 10 dimensions. Four of them are directly measurable, length, width, height, and time. Six of them, as they would put it, are curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and therefore are only inferable by indirect means. That's using expressions of vector calculus. So the point is, you know, what Nachmanides did by doing his homework in Genesis 1, we've spent millions of dollars on atomic accelerators to learn the same thing. But all right, point is, You don't have to go to outer space or something to find dimensionalities that apparently are inhabited by beings. And I'm not assuming that the angels are outside the time domain. God is, they they, they ain't, okay? And I don't know how many of you had your first grade teachers told you about using the word ain't. It's a perfectly good Jewish word. (laughs) Did you know that ain is a verb in the Hebrew? I wish I'd known that when I was in grammar school, but anyway. (laughs) So what is our threat assessment? Paul tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. Democratic national, no, I'm sorry, Uh, (laughs) whoa, whoa, yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to do that. Whitewater's not over till the First Lady sings, I understand. (laughs) Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So our resource is not Genesis 6, it's Ephesians 6. And just to anticipate the conclusion here, I'm going to ask each of you that have taken this conference seriously to make a commitment between you and the Lord to undertake a serious study of Ephesians 6, 10-17. We won't do it here tonight because we've got other things to cover. We'll touch probably on some of that tomorrow morning, if quite a, a Sunday morning service, I'll let the Lord lead, we'll see what comes, but I suspect we'll touch upon that unless the Lord Shows me something else tomorrow morning at the Calvary Chapel, goes to or Calvary Chapel at Roswell. But anyway, um, but make yourself a commitment. I don't think you can understand the Old and New Testament unless you understand Genesis 6. We covered that this morning. But your resource is not in Genesis 6, your resource is in Ephesians 6. Easy to remember. Paul tells us, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. That's an imperative, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen because you've been spirit-filled on some occasion. Not that I'm knocking that, don't misunderstand me. It's something you have to do. You have to put on, not your favorite pieces, the whole, he says it twice in the passage, by the way, put on the whole armor of God. When do you do that? During the battle? Before the battle. By the way, you're already on enemy turf, so think about it. Put on the whole armor of God. There are seven elements. You need to understand what they are in order to put them on. If you don't do that, you are a sitting duck. Now I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about some prophecy for a couple of reasons. There are about more than ten major themes of Bible prophecy, of end time type prophecy. And those are the, and and we try to monitor each one of those on our website and uh, through our publications and what have you. And what's fascinating is as you study each of the, and we talked about some of those this morning very broadly, what's fascinating, it isn't any one of them, it's every one of them are unfolding right before our very noses, positioning them for the final climax. But I want to take one of them because there's some aspects to it that startled me to discover verses that I've been teaching for 30 years that had hidden in them something I had never noticed. It happened because I was intensely redoing all my homework in Genesis 6 and going back to Daniel 2 that something leapt out at me and it's embarrassing because I've been teaching Daniel 2 for more than 30 years. And I want to get at that but there's a couple of reasons I want to get at this. Those of you that have studied, first of all you know the Bible generally relates history both past and future in terms of Israel through the lens of Israel. Almost all the passages deal with Israel as the focal point. But there are two exceptions in the Bible where the Gentile world is in focus, primary focus. Daniel 2 is one of those passages. And I won't go through the details. I'm sure it's familiar to most of you. If not, just read Daniel 2. It's quite clear. It lays it all out. It's a very colorful event. But it deals with a vision, or excuse me, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had as a young man. He was general in the army, defeated Pharaoh Necho, a major battle in the ancient world, which made Babylon the primary power at that time. On his way home, he lays siege to Jerusalem. During the siege, he discovers his father's died. He's now king of Babylon, sets up a vassal king, takes hostages, Daniel and some friends and some others, and goes home to take over the the throne. At home, of course, he inherits the old palace guards, the staff people that were on the payroll of his dad are his cronies, I mean, his dad's that he has to deal with. He has a very troubling dream one night, and he's trying to find out several. He wants to find out what the dream means, but he also wants to find out if these guys can cut the mustard. So he pretends to have forgotten the dream. He says, I want you guys to interpret my dream, but you have to tell me what the dream is. They panic. No one can do that. He says, well, I'll explain it to you more more clearly. You're all stalling for time. Off with your heads. And Daniel happens to be in that job description that just, you know, Nebuchadnezzar knew how to reduce headcount. You know, he... Um, so he goes to the supervisor and says, hey, why so hasty? Let us pray about it and we'll get the answer. Super says, you know, okay. And so he and his three buddies says, boy, do we have a prayer meeting tonight? And they pray about it. <laughs> and God gives Daniel the answer. And there's a grandstand scene that's, you, you have to read to believe it. It's fabulous. Courts there, the king there, the guys who couldn't cut it are in the back row. Daniel comes up and says, there's nobody can do it. Those guys couldn't. Neither can we, but God can, and here's, the, here's what his dream was. And he describes the dream, basically a man made out of metal, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs with iron, and the feet, the iron's mixed with clay. All right. And then a stone cut without hands smites the image at the base of it, it crumbles, it blows away, and that stone grows to a mountain and fills the whole earth. That is a pretty strange dream. Let's face it, it really is. Not to worry, Daniel ex- interprets it for us. And he goes on to point out that the head of gold represents Babylon. And, that, and, and the, each one of the, there's four major empires, the fourth one in two phases, the Roman Empire but in two phases, what I'll call phase one and phase two. And, I, uh, and I'll come back to this, but the point is, this was done when Daniel was a young man, the early part of his career. Later in his life, Daniel himself, in chapter 7 of Daniel, gets a set of visions directly They're totally different idioms that are used, but the same subject matter. In Daniel 7, we have a, he sees a series of voracious beasts. Both are timelines of all the world empires from that day until when uh, God intervenes, sets up his own. The first one is the way man sees it, bright, shiny metals. The second occasion was as God sees it, a series of voracious beasts, but they're still talking about the same nations. First one's sort of like a winged lion, second one like a bear on one side, the third one's sort of like a winged leopard. Then the last one doesn't have any analogy. It's just a great, awful, terrible beast. And anyway, Daniel interprets those, and and we're not going to focus that much on here other than to point out that most scholars who have studied this recognize the parallel between the two, obviously, and that there really are not, there are not five, there's four empires, but the fourth one is in, it breaks up into pieces and then recoalesces in a new form later. Now, Babylon, indeed, was conquered by the Persians. Persians were conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. Who conquered the Romans? Answered, nobody. 476 AD or thereabouts, it broke into pieces. Each of those pieces have had a bid towards world dominion. The Dutch, the French twice, the Germans twice, Britain as the mistress of the seas, the Spanish armada. You know, you go through European history, you see them each sort of have their day, but never quite making it all the way. But they are, according to the biblical scenario, to recoalesce into a final in a form. And this is why commentators for centuries have talked about what they call quaintly the revived Roman Empire, weird stuff the way it's expressed. And yet, let's take a look at what's going on. We are sitting in a day when there's a re-emergent European superstate. Everybody talks about the Treaty of Rome. It's obsolete. In, in November of 1993, a treaty was signed called the Master's Treaty that most Americans have never heard of, but anyone in international circles will tell you it's probably the most important event of the century. It's not a United States of Europe. It's a single centralized European superstate provided by the mechanisms of those treaties, that treaty, a common foreign policy, a common military, and ultimately a common currency. And their struggle right now to make that common currency is a gigantic debate. Unless you're in international finance, you probably do not have no ability to really relate to the struggle that's going on it will either cause the coalescing of this empire or it may cause Europe to come apart and plunge into anarchy, one or the other. Either way, it's not hard to visualize someone taking over. But the move appears to be a centralized socialistic group. Now, to put this in perspective, the United States has a population base of about 265 million people. We're talking 435 million people, it's larger than the United States by far. The good news from our point of view is they also have a socialistic overhead that's worse than ours. <laughs> no, seriously, there's a, there's a real problem there, and so we'll just watch and see. Now it's kind of interesting, I can't talk about this without showing you the symbol for the Parliament of Europe, which is a woman right at Europa riding Zeus, a woman riding a beast, has a cup in her hand and she's riding over on a, the beast is riding on seven hills. Now you say, gee, that sounds like Revelation 17. Very close, except the beast is white, not red. It's supposed to be Zeus in disguise, seducing one of these young women. But anyway, uh, it's kind of fun. So, While all this is going on, we discover a w- move worldwide to ecumenicalism, one world religion. Biblical Christianity is becoming increasingly politically incorrect. That's why in Assisi, Italy, the Pope can have a massive world prayer meeting with snake charmers, devil worshipers, Satanists, you name it. Why? What's his agenda? To be the leader of the ecumenical movement. You say that's kind of wild. Let me give it to you more wild. Do you realize that if you're Muslim, you're saved as far as the Catholic Church is concerned? Vatican II, check it out. If you are a Protestant, there are 100 anathemas condemning you to hell. In Vatican II. Well, what's going on? Let's move on. If you haven't read Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, it's must reading. Dave and I have a few places that we don't have, we we don't see the same things as quite the same way, but let me tell you that book is well-documented and a must reading for any serious Christian. Okay, now while this is going on, we obviously have a huge tide towards what's called a New World Order. That's not the terminology of the conspiracy theorists. that's the terminology of George Bush, Bill Clinton, Henry Kissinger, the people who are doing it. Don't let anyone call you a conspiracy nut because you're acknowledging the reality of our current policies, not just in this country, but almost every major country. When I, I had the opportunity to interview 50 of the top leadership that were involved in the Masters Treaty throughout Europe, and it's interesting, this conspiracy games going on behind the scenes to slip that through are no different than what we see going on in Washington today. There is an agenda, apparently, for a world without borders, the end of the independent nation state. And if you think this is exaggerated, go to Washington DC and go to the Museum of American History and try to find some American history. It's all been stripped out. You'll find exhibits of how we abused the Indians. You'll find exhibits of the China that the first ladies used during their various administrations, but you'll find no founding fathers, no Christian heritage, etc. Interesting. The revisionists are at it. Multiculturalism rather than our uh, heritage. We are moving the world, not just the U.S., the world, to a centralized socialistic government. Now what are the forcing functions? The environmentalists have their pl- plays, the trade unionists, the multinational corporations, they all are in favor of this for different reasons. But what's the real forcing function to make this happen? There are two, at least. One, nuclear proliferation. Thirteen countries today, they have nuclear weapons, they're all mad at each other. 23 countries today building intercontinental ballistic missiles. They're all mad at each other. 66 countries today that have the technology to field a surface-skimming cruise missile. It's no longer us and them. It isn't the stabilization of two equal, balanced people. It's a free-for-all. Interesting. That's, and when you study that problem, how do you solve it? From a second point of view, if you had a Department of Defense ten times its present size, who'd you point it at? No. The answer it seems, is global supervision, okay? There's another forcing function that has escaped the notice of most writers. And that's the possibility that the world is moving toward a consolidated government in anticipation of a cosmic threat. Oh, boy, Chuck, you're really weird now. Yeah, maybe so. So is Douglas MacArthur. In 1955, he said, the next war will be an interplanetary war. The nations must someday make a common front against attack by people from other planets. That's Douglas MacArthur. See a wacko? You may not agree with him, but still, okay. President Ronald Reagan before the United Nations, 1985. We need some universal threat to recognize our common bond. How quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world now he may have just been using that as a rhetorical device but it shows up several times in his speeches is he hinting something is he tipping us off on something that is going on deeply behind the scenes that we are not really aware of until recently is this one of the reasons why it seems that the government not only the one thing, we don't know what happened at Roswell 50 years ago. There are lots of folklore, lots of stories, many of the residents quite frightened, afraid to really speak. We don't know what really happened, but what, i tell you what we do know. It doesn't take a lot of research to discover that there has been a massive cover-up. as to what did happen. We don't know what happened, but we know it's been covered up, and anyone that doesn't know that just hasn't done their homework. The mystery about Roswell isn't aliens, the mystery about Roswell is why has the U.S. government bathed this thing in deceit and cover stories and foolishness for 50 years what's so nationally sensitive that after 50 years they still can't tell us what went on several presidents a number of congressmen and senators have tried to pry open this can unsuccessfully what's going on i never took mj12 seriously i heard the stories i dismissed them for lots of reasons but i suspect if you start doing your homework seriously you begin to wonder that maybe that isn't as far-fetched as you might think. Anyway, let's take a look at what the Scripture is going to say about this stuff. This presentation is familiar to many of you that have heard me before teaching Daniel 2. But I want to focus on the clay, the iron mixed with clay. In fact, our little briefing package on the European superstate is called iron mixed with clay because every it's an idiom in our vocabulary. The idol has clay feet, we say. Where did that come from? Daniel 5. Or, excuse me, Daniel 2, excuse me, Daniel 2. Now, many of us, and I'll put myself in the same category, and I won't mention names so I don't misquote somebody, but there's, if I took a half a dozen of the top conservative Bible teachers that basically see eye to eye and put myself in that category with them, I think we all have taught something of this flavor, that the clay represents People, you are the potter; I am the clay, etc. And what we sort of visualize is that the iron in the final stages of the ten toes, which correspond to the ten horns later, and all this other stuff, is that those um, see in Daniel seven. There's there's a 10 there they're ten heads, and I won't tie it all together right now. But the point is that it doesn't have the cohesion of the earlier empire because it's sort of maybe maybe it's a you know a democratic people ruling kind of. Uh, uh, ingredient that's that's in focus here that's been our view go back to hear my old tapes you'll hear me say things like that well what is the clay the clay by the way see the problem is Daniel 2 the book of Daniel switches from Hebrew to the Gentile language of that day Aramaic from chapter 2 to chapter 7 why because it deals with the Gentile world so it's in Aramaic not Hebrew and the root for myri clay comes from an aramaic word which means to sweep myri clay turns out to be clay made from dust okay myri clay is made from dust now if you're if you're a mystic like i am dust is suggestive of death and and i i started getting into this when i was studying i was chasing down the rephaim and these Nephilim synonyms in the Old Testament. But let me tell you something. Daniel, in verse 43 of Daniel 2, interprets it for us, and it's been there all along, and I never noticed it. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, Daniel speaking, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, comma, he then switches to a personal pronoun. That's obviously the idiom of the dream. But what does it mean? It speaks of a group. They shall do what? They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, comma. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So the, he's speaking of it politically. It doesn't adhere. Why? Because there's an ingredient called that represented by the miry clay that shall not mingle themselves with the seed of men. I've read that for 40 years and it never hit me. In order to mingle with the seed of men, the they must be something other than the normal natural seed of men. If it's normal, how could it mingle? If it's the same, in other words, how do you mix, you don't mix sugar with sugar. You might mix sugar with salt or something. You follow me? In other words, to mingle, implies a dissimilarity. How are they dissimilar? They're not the seed of men. Ooh. When you come here from Genesis 6, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, not only are there Nephilim on the earth, also after that, like Genesis 6-4 indicates, and we can expect that to be Precedent to the second coming, because Jesus says as the days of Noah, so shall the, et etc, okay, they apparently are not only around they are so numerous as to constitute a significant political constituency. it would seem who now, suddenly we start reexamining some of these verses we've been talking about. For there shall arise false uh, Christ, false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. What will protect you from being deceived? Not your intellect, not your PhDs or H2SO4s after your name. Not the church you attend. It's your position in Christ. It's your position in Christ. What is your position in Christ? Are you secure because you went down the sawdust trail and made a commitment at one of the exciting rallies? I don't know. I know I can, how I can tell. Has your life changed? Is the indwelling invisible God indwelling you Manifest? I'm sure He's there if you're born again, and yet, is it manifest in your walk, in your life, in your priorities? You're not saved by the priorities, but it will manifest whether you really are in Christ or not, to me, as an observer. I'm not called to inspect uh, uh, gifts. I'm called to inspect fruit. Let's move on. Let's go back to the roots. The original warfare, I will put in uh, God declaring war, we talked about this earlier, but just review. God declaring war on Satan started a war. God started it. Satan didn't. Satan never initiates anything. God initiated it. Thou will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and he shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. At Calvary, of course. Now, this of course leads to the conflict between two seeds. The seed of the woman we talked about. We even went through the whole blood curse of and I and all that earlier. No one talks about the seed of the serpent, there are two seeds in that verse, the seed of the serpent. You mean the serpent has seeds too? The Nahash, the shining one, has seed? Yeah, absolutely. And this starts to involve at least three personages, of course, the red dragon, Satan himself, we see in uh, Revelation 12, we'll look at that a little more, the coming world leader. I don't call him the Antichrist because that's misleading. We all call him the Antichrist. I try to avoid that term because no one knows what it means. They all think it means against Christ. No, antichristos in the Greek means pseudo-Christ, in place of. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a summary of the whole relationship between the woman who is paying to be delivered, bringing forth the man-child. Who is the woman in Revelation 12? Israel. Good for you. It's not the church. It's not the church. It's very clearly identified for us because of the... The uh, relationship to the Matzeroth, which goes back to Genesis 37 and 38, where Jacob himself interprets Revelation 12 for you. But it's certainly not the church. I love the way Chuck Smith summarized it. If the woman in chapter 12 is the church, she's in big trouble because she's pregnant. (laughs) But then there's an interlude. It says, and behold, a great red dragon. Who's the red dragon? In verse 9 of the same chapter, it says Satan. It identifies him for us. Having seven heads and ten horns, that's a throwback to the Daniel passages, and seven crowns upon it says, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be de- delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. I think this is an idiomatic summary of that whole chain of strategies that Satan uh, we reviewed earlier this morning from the, in, the attempt to corrupt the, the human line in Genesis 6, all, all the slaughters, all the attempts to thwart God's plan right up to the end and still continuing. Now, verse 5, interesting verse. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now that tells us from Psalm 110 and a bunch of other verses who is the one that's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Jesus Jesus Christ, exactly. It's an identity piece. And her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. Verse 6 will go on to the tribulation. Now, Most of us, when we look at this verse, recognize it right away, the man-child is clearly Christ. The woman is sort of Israel, we accept that, but what we really mean is Israel in the sense that it started with Eve. It's a chain from Eve to um, Mary, birth of the man-child. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. It's kind of interesting, all of us, I think, generally visualize this being fulfilled in the ascension. Jesus finished his ministry on the earth, and then he ascended, right? Acts chapter 1, how many read that? About 10%, huh? (laughs) Big problem. Um, I'm indebted to G.H. Pember, who's the first one to call my attention to the possibility that what's in view in that last clause is maybe two things together. Not that it excludes the ascension. Do you know what else might be in view there? The rapture. The rapture. That's why Paul uses the idiom, the body of Christ is caught up to God and to His throne. Why? Because following this, verse 6, is what? The tribulation. That's kind of interesting. It's not a verse to build a pre-trib doctrine on, but with a pre-trib viewpoint, you look at it and say, whoa, that's kind of interesting. In any case, if you take it as an ascension, there's a gap between 5 and 6. That gap occurs, of course, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, and a number of places throughout the Scripture. Do you mind how many times that interval is implied in the Scripture? 24 times. I think that's an interesting number for those of you that study elders and such. Let's move on. 2 <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 2 also deals key, very key New Testament prophetic passage. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now hindereth will hinder until he be taken out of the way. And there's all kinds of conjectures about this, but if you do a careful study of that chapter in the Greek, you can, I think, clearly understand who is the one that's hindering. Who is the one that's hindering? The Holy Spirit, exactly. It's not Michael the Archangel, because he's for a lot of reasons. Now, he that hindereth, the only one that ever hinders sin is God. So it's God in some sense and clearly it's the Holy Spirit for lots of reasons. It's also, it, it's, it's also supported from the, the, the Greek uh, grammar and I won't get into that here. I think most of us understand that. If not, do some homework and check it out. One of the questions, by the way, is what is the restrainer restraining while well, he's restraining sin? Well, if that's his primary job, he's doing a lousy job. Look around. No, he's restraining something else called the mystery of iniquity, whatever that means. There's something very specific, I believe, more denotative, that is being held in check at the moment. When the rapture occurs, when the Holy Spirit's taken out, including his containers, something very strange is going to be unleashed, the lack of restraint. You think you've seen UFOs and aliens and weirdness so far? I think those are just leaks. Those are just who knows what they are. The world really would like to move on unencumbered by Christians, and God is going to give them what they're asking for. They're going to get their chance. Mankind would like to run things for themselves, and God is going to give them that opportunity. It's going to be very interesting. Anyway, when that happens, see I believe that the rapture is a prerequisite condition to the wicked one being revealed. That's why I never waste any time with speculations on who the Antichrist is. And then shall that wicked one be revealed whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The wicked one is one of 13 titles of this guy in the New Testament and 33 titles in the Old Testament. Who is this guy? People call him the Antichrist. Okay. I want you to notice something. His he, comings after the working of Satan with what? All power and signs and lying wonders. You and I have absolutely no ability to even guess at what this is going to involve. But it's going to be very, very impressive. So impressive the whole world is going to go after him. He's going to be the most attractive guy you've ever seen.